Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. But um, what you see in chapter 6 is you see the church innovating. The church has an issue. There's, there's a problem that needs to be dealt with. And the elders of the church, the apostles who are technically the functional elders of the church at that time, come up with this, I, this concept of getting these seven men to take the burden off of them and they give it to them. All right. And the, the important thing, again, to, to, that I want to stress and make, make sure we absolutely understand is that in the church, all leadership is based on character. Mm-hmm. It's always. All right, whether you're serving tables or whether you're preaching a sermon, it's based on character. And a lot of times we don't look very much at that, right? We're more, we're more looking at the person's abilities or, or talents than we are at their character. All right? And, and we need to be careful with that. Um, the same thing with people who give, right? We, we tend to elevate the people who give a lot of money. Many churches, you know, you've got some big donor in there. He's usually on the trustee board or something like that because, you know, he's the president of a corporation. He might be a godless person, but we stick him up there because, hey, you know, it's good for the offering. Listen, it's all about character. It is. Go, go to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and 3, or chapter 3. A bishop must be what? Blameless. Blameless. A one-woman man. Yep. Not to be pugnacious. What does that mean? Not, not to be argumentative and fight. Mm. He's not to love money. Ooh, that, that, okay, that, just, that eliminates the entire crowd on TBN right there. Oh, yeah. All right? Be a, not to be a lover of money. Yeah. Why? Why are you not to be a lover of money? You'll compromise to get it. You'll be compromising. And it's interesting, back in, in, in uh, Exodus 19, 18 and 19, remember Jethro shows up? Who's Jethro? Not Jethro Bodine, all right? Moses' father-in-law shows up. And he observes a life in the day of his son-in-law. And Moses is killing himself, adjudicating all of these little petty disputes. And his father-in-law says, Moses, you're nuts. That's the Schaefer translation. What do you do? You find yourself some men. And what, what was one of the character qualities of the men? They're not to love a bribe. Why? Because I can bribe you to sway your judgment my way. Yeah. You can be bought. God, you can't buy God. What to do with leadership that don't want to elevate nothing? They want to keep control of you know everything that goes on in the church. You know, um, like uh, and, and so they see you know a lot of they are all burned out and drugged out and all this kind of stuff, but they don't want to let go of nothing. You got all the people that can help you, but. Yeah, sometimes sometimes it's a control problem. You know, a control problem. There are, there are pastors that want to be the big cheese. 
You know, they want to be the ones who, who call all of the shots. Yeah. All right. That's not the model of spiritual leadership that you see in the New Testament. Um, Is uh, the model in the New Testament any, anything associated with the politics that goes on in the church? What do you mean by that? Would you agree that there are politics in a church? Anything? Oh, absolutely there is. Absolutely. Absolutely there are politics. That's part of our fallen culture. All right. Um, yeah. When you look at church leadership and, you know, you look at the qualities of leadership as found in Timothy and Titus, for example, um, one of the major characteristics is that of humility. You don't have to do everything. It's the job of the pastor to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, mm -hmm. not to do it all himself. Um, and the tighter you hold on to something, the less able you are to hold on to it. All right. And and one of the one of the problems that that are that many churches struggle with is pastors who want to control everything. And um, there are churches where the pastor determines when and where you can go on vacation. You know, how much you can, yeah, there are. Um, uh, how much you give, they they are interested. There are some churches you have to gain permission of the pastoral leadership to get married and who you're going to marry. They tell you who you're going to marry. I'm not making it up. It exists. Um, that is not church leadership. But the, the, the church elder, the elder of the church, his, he, and we're going to find this later on in, in Acts. We keep getting on these rabbit trails, but listen, it's in the book of Acts. We're going to get to it. Mm -hmm. His job is threefold. And I, I, I like to use the, the, um, the acronym for the, for the leader of the church, the, the elder. He has to weed, feed, and lead. Weed, feed, and lead. All right. That's the job of, of the elder of the church. And by the way, who is the elder? He is the pastor. He is the shepherd. All right. And in Acts chapter 20, you find three words used. All right. Interchangeably. You have this thing called, I'm going to put the Greek word, episkopos. All right. What do you think we get, word we get from that? Episcopalian. Episcopalian. Okay. There's another one, press, buteros. What's that sound like? Presbyterian. And then you got another one here, poi amen. Okay. Those are the three Greek words. All right. Not Pokemon. Episkopos means overseer. It's someone who stands up before or over something. It's used. It's often translated bishop. Presbyteros is elder. Uh, it means person with a gray beard, gray-haired one. Poeman is shepherd. All right. Pastor. All right. And what you find is that these three terms are used interchangeably to refer to one individual in the New Testament. What does the elder of a church do? Well, he should be an elder in the sense he's not some young guy that doesn't know what's going on. Not young in the faith, right? Someone who's been seasoned a little bit. All right. He is, his, his 
office is that of an overseer. What's an overseer? He just manages. He just stands over. It doesn't mean he's the dictator. He's, he oversees it. And what is his duty? It's to shepherd the flock. And that's what you see in Acts chapter 20, where Paul calls the elders of the church of Ephesus together and talks about them in the sense of God has made them overseers, episcopos, and they are to shepherd poemen, the flock of God. So these are three interchangeable terms. It's not three offices, it's three interchangeable terms. This is what he does. This is what he should be. This is his office, the title of the office. What's a presbyterist? What's that? What was that? Elder. What's the name? Elder. 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 It refers to one with a white beard, white hair. Is one. In the New Testament mm -hmm. usage, they're synonymous. Yeah, Acts 20 relates all three of them together. That's the primary passage that does it. There's a book okay. called Team Ministry that breaks that down, like how eldership is In the New Testament, you had a multiplicity of elders in a church. You didn't have one guy that ran it. Yeah. Rather, you had multiple men who are recognized as elders. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, so there, there's a check and a balance there. All right. But the basic job of the elder is this shepherding. And what does shepherding consist of? Weeding, feeding, and leading. You're to weed the flock in the sense that you are to make sure. Think of what a shepherd does. you got a bunch of sheep. What's one of his jobs? Keep them from eating the wrong thing, right? Got to keep them from eating loco weed. All right. So one of the jobs of the elder, the pastor, is to make sure that the flock is not eating spiritually things that are detrimental to their health. So there is a negative component of shepherding in a sense that you tell people, don't listen to that, don't believe that, don't go there. All right. Then there's the feeding part. Well, it's not just stay away from, but they, he is to feed the flock. And what does he feed the flock? Word. The word of God, not his own opinions. His opinions are irrelevant. His opinions are irrelevant. I've known some people that stand up and say, well, the Bible says this, but I believe blah, 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 blah. Well, I don't care what you believe, really. I believe what I, I want to know what the Bible says. That's what I'm interested in. All right. And the pastor's authority in the church extends as far as the scripture and no farther. It's not his business to tell you who to marry and what job to take and when to take a vacation. That's not what God has called him to do. No, that's irrelevant. God's called him to weed, feed, and then to lead the flock. And how do you lead the flock? By example. You don't tell him, do this. You tell him, do this in the sense that I'm doing this. What did Paul say? Be followers together with me as I am of Christ. So if your pastor is not following Christ, should you really be following him? No, probably not. It's all about character. It's all about what you are. And, and, and the man of God, the pastor, is someone who is, who is immersed in the word of God, preaches the word of God. His, his authority is the word of God. And when somebody comes to him, and challenges his teaching by using the word of God, he needs to be humble enough 
to listen to it. And if he's not, he's not qualified to be a man of God. It's all about character. It's all about character. And, and, and what you see in the book of Acts is you see that the church was all about, the leadership was all about character. And Paul, not Paul, but the church here early on, when they chose men to be deacons to represent the church, they made sure they were people of character. And then this character is borne out by one in particular because it focuses in on him, Stephen. And we all know the story of Stephen, right? Stephen who confronted them. Verse 8, Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Again, the sign gifts are operative. He's preaching the word of God. He's proclaiming the gospel message. And some people got a little bit upset with him because they couldn't win the argument. Um, you know, it sort of reminds you of politics, doesn't it? Well, you can't win the argument, so you call the guy and say, well, your mother wears army boots. You know? Or something like that. You know, you, you can't win the argument, so you got to go attack the person. See? And what is happening here? Simon, now, now what, what kind of person is Stephen? Let, let's, let's think about this. Let's, let's, let's do some inductive Bible study here. When you look at Stephen here, what are some of the character qualities that pop out that he had? He had faith. He was very passionate. Timid or bold? Bold. Bold. All right. Obnoxious or gracious? Gracious. Gracious. He's full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit. Where do you get the wisdom from? And where else? Where's the Holy Spirit? What's the Holy Spirit have to work with? Huh? Leader. Huh? Well, what does the Holy Spirit work with? The Word of God, right? The more Word of God you get in you, the more the Holy Spirit has to work with, right? Right. You know, sometimes say, you know, Holy Spirit, you know, I like to be godly. Or, so, well, you know, I ain't got much to work with there. You don't know anything. I mean, I'm doing the best I can with what you got. But, you know, if you want to get, you know, get ahead farther in a Christian life, you need to fill your mind with the Word of God. The Holy Spirit can then use that Word in your life. All right, and and this is one of the characteristics of Stephen. By the way, this guy was not just your average table server, right? He was far beyond that. He was a man of God. He knew the Word of God, and not only that, he was able to articulate his faith. He was able to dispute with the religious muckety mucks. He was able to answer their dissension, and finally, when they lost the argument, the only thing they could do was kill him to shut him up. He wasn't going to back down. Now, the average Christian would have backed down, wouldn't they? Yeah. But not Stephen. Not Stephen. And these people stirred up the 
crowd. And they, they accused him of speaking blasphemous words, which he didn't. Because when you go through his description of the Jewish faith, it shows that he had respect for Abraham and Moses. And one thing, interesting observation here, is when, when um, Stephen began to preach the gospel, his, his gospel presentation, where did he start in the history? At Abraham, why? Well, the Jews knew Abraham, right? They had a concept of God, all right? Now, when Paul began to preach the word of God or the gospel to the Greeks in Athens, where did he start? Creation. The God who made y'all. Think about that. When Paul, began, when Paul preached to the pagans, he started with creation. When he preached to the Jews, he started with Abraham because they already had the creation piece down. One of the difficulties we have as Christians today, quite honestly, is most of us have been Christians for so long, we forgot what it's like to be a pagan. You know, I, I, I was nominated to one of the boards of the church here, and I had to fill out this tome. 12 pages. I think I got up to 12 pages or something. I got, I filled out this long, lengthy response to questions. And one of them is, you know, when did you become a Christian? And it's like, well, I've, I've really, I've always believed. I mean, I grew up in a church. I've always believed in God. I mean, I know there was a day when I turned, when I went from darkness to light, when I became a child of God. I remember that time. But technically, I've always believed in God. You didn't have to start off now, Alan, remember, you know, God created you. Oh, wow, wonder. I didn't know that. I always believed that. Who told you that? I grew up in a church. I grew up in Sunday school. I grew up in a church. I always believed in God. But, but, but you're dealing with people today, some of them have no concept of who Jesus is. I remember in one of the meetings here in our church, we were, there was a big group in of adults and one guy got up and he was a doctor a doctor I think at EMH or something like that a heart specialist or something guys you know 40 years old and he said until three years ago I had no idea who Jesus was and I about fell out of my chair you mean you could be a doctor and not even know who Jesus is so all I know is you know some word you use when you hit your hammer you nail the hammer he, I didn't know who Jesus was I had no idea who Jesus was or what God was, or, or any. we're dealing with people nowadays, folks, that they don't know who God is. I know people who never been to church a day in their life. Yeah. And they're 25, 30, 18, and they never have stepped foot in the church. Mm -hmm. Yep. 10% of the people I, when I do an initial assessment, I ask them about the spiritual life, they look at me and they say, What's that? Oh, 10%. Mm -hmm. Yep. They don't understand the question. Yeah. And then I asked them if they've ever been to church. I said, no. Did your parents go to church? No. Yeah. Did, you know, did they ever discuss those things? No. We're living in that kind of world, that kind of society. Everybody knows because of modern day times. Well, we, we think, you know, well, I've always known about God. Everybody knows about God. No, they don't. No, they don't. Don't assume that. And by the way, just as an aside, that's why this whole seven-day creation and evolution and all that stuff is such a big issue. Because mm -hmm. if you get rid of that, what need is there of God, right? You're just an accidental yeah. monkey. Yeah. 
you know. You're a civilized baboon. That's all you are. You're the top of the evolutionary food chain. It just so happened you lucked out. You know, if you were born 20 million years ago, you'd been a orangutan hanging in a tree. I mean, that's, that's, if you get rid of that, you're no special. You're nothing. What's the difference between you and a monkey? You drive a car and wear clothes. Big deal. I mean, if we're all a product of evolution, that's why it's, it's such a damning thing to give place to that as a believer. Because when you get rid of the creation, you get rid of the uniqueness of man. They're still fighting that in Tennessee. Yeah, still fighting that. I have a lot of relatives from Dayton, Tennessee. Live right up the mountain from Dayton. You know, and the, when you see Stephen here, he starts his presentation with Abraham because he's trying to answer the accusation. You don't have any respect for Jewish customs. And he's saying, yes, I do. And he recounted, and here's the thing, he's suckering them in, he's drawing them in. Because, you know, as a pompous Jew who thinks you're the greatest thing on the planet, mm -hmm. you know, to be told about, you know, and you're the children of Abraham, and Abraham, you're, oh yeah, yeah, pre yeah, amen, yeah, yeah. And then he gets down to the point, oh, you killed your own Messiah. Yes, he did. Yeah, and see, and, and, and see, here's a question. Think about this. When you're dealing with a Mormon, what should you tell them? There is no new revelation. That Jesus is more than a good person. That he is God. You, you deal with the deity of Christ. When you deal with Jehovah Witnesses, where do you start? Yeah. You're not one of the 144. Where do you start? Jesus. Personal work of Christ. Not a God. He is God. When you deal with Catholicism, where do you start? What's the great error? Here's the point. Where you start, where you start is at the point of their error. You confront error with truth. You understand that? Don't mamby pamby around with all this other stuff that doesn't matter. I mean, I could get in. I could bring a Mormon in here. We could argue about whether it's one heaven or seven heavens or three heavens. We could be arguing about this and that and it. All that's that's all irrelevant. In the grand scheme of things, that's all irrelevant. What's relevant? Who is Jesus? Mm -hmm. And what did he do? Right. Well, you could sit here until you're blue in the face and talk about whether you're one of the 144,000 or not to a Jehovah Witness. It's irrelevant. What's relevant? Who is Jesus? Yeah. That's what's relevant. You could stay all day long and talk about whether the Pope is in or out of hell. He's in hell, just so you know. That's the answer. You could talk about whether you should pray to Mary or not. You should talk about. You could talk about whether... Whether Mother Teresa is in heaven, of course she is. Well, no, she's not. But you could, you, I mean, you could do all day long. What do you do? You, you deal with who is Jesus? What did he do? Salvation by faith alone and Christ alone. All the rest of the stuff is irrelevant. You deal at the point of error. You confront error by confronting it where it is wrong, where it is error. You don't confront it by dancing around it, hoping to sneak up on a guy and get him. 
you going to do with that scripture in Ecclesiastes somewhere 12 or something? I'm not good at that. That says that uh, God reclaims our spirit. So, where's he going to put those that are not in, in purgatory? <laughs> not go to hell. She's trying to. No, yeah, I've attended zero yeah. to 12. Yeah. But uh, no. Uh, no, the, the, you got to understand the book as a, as an answer to that. You got to understand what Ecclesiastes is talking about. It's talking about life from a human perspective. Yeah. Subtract God. That's what you're going to come up with in Ecclesiastes. Mm -hmm. Vanity to vanity, all is vanity. That's it. And what happens? Well, you know, it's better to be a live dog than a dead lion. Well, yeah. If this is all there is, sure there is, right? I mean, from the human perspective, it is vain, it's worthless, it's futile. And guess what? When you're dead, the spirit goes back to wherever it goes, and that's all there is. Yeah. Yeah. It's not. It's not a theological treatise on life. That's not what the point is. I've got it out of context. You've got it out of context. Help me. Help me with this. Done. Well, this isn't going to come out quite right. But isn't Christianity somewhat an offshoot of the old Catholic Church, Catholicism? Where where did the church start going wrong? Started going wrong with Constantine in three hundred. About three hundred. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's when it started going wrong. You had little bits and pieces peeling off along the way, but where where the church you know, in, in a grand way went awry was with Con after Constantine. He was the Roman ruler of um, in the 300s. He was persecuting Christianity. He had a dream one night of a burning cross and said, in this sign conquer. So he converted to Christianity, became the Holy Roman Empire. They drug in all of their paganism, made it Christian. That's why he got monks and nuns and prayers to saints and all this other Mumbo jumbo came from that, but but the church wasn't the church wasn't um, the church was birthed on Pentecost. Yes, the true church. We're talking about the Roman church here. Talking about the Roman church. All right, but yeah, but the thing the th the point to be made here is when when you look at Peter, Peter on the day of Pentecost, what what issue did he hit them between the eyes with? You didn't recognize your Messiah. Not only did you recognize him, you killed him. How does Stephen do this? He hits him right at the point of error. Here's the point, people. All right. When you are preaching the gospel, you have to hit people at the point of error. You don't do. You're not doing them any good by by spending all the time talking about all the things you have in common. One of the difficulties today is there's a, there's a significant movement in Christianity where some have said, you know, this whole Reformation thing was a big mistake. You know, Martin Luther was really way out of line when he split with the Roman Catholic Church. Because after all, we're one big happy family. We still, all of us love Jesus. We love... Now, wait a minute. All right. There's truth. And there's a whole lot of error out there. And what you see... The disciples doing what you see Stephen doing, what you see Christ doing is he's hitting people at the point of their error. 
What, what, where is their error? And error is, where is it that they have fouled up in their understanding of God's truth? And that's what you drive at. When the Mormons came to my door, I didn't, I didn't care about how many heavens there were and all of this other kind of stuff and whether Joseph was a prophet or not. I hit them on two points. Revelation and Jesus Christ. Because that's, that's really the crux of the matter. You get those two things wrong, it doesn't matter where you land. You're not going to land in heaven. They have an aberrant Christology. They have an aberrant view of Revelation. And you could argue all day long on what kind of man Joseph Smith was, whether it's good or bad. or That's, that's totally irrelevant to the picture. You could spend your entire life arguing down rabbit trails. And, and get nowhere. I know. And that's that's one of the dangers I think Christians do. Is they want to argue all these little nitpicky points. It's irrelevant. The relevant point in, 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 in Jehovah Witnesses is who is Jesus? And it's interesting. John MacArthur, I, I use a lot of MacArthur illustrations because I listen to so many of his sermons. He had a guy come out, come and meet him one time. And the man says, you don't know who I am. He said, let me tell you about myself. He said, he said, um, I came to know the Lord through Word of Grace radio program. He said, I was the number one teacher in the state of Florida for the Watchtower Society. He said, That's Jehovah Witnesses. He said, my father had been in that for generations. All my family is in that. And I was the number one person in leadership in the entire state of Florida. So I had to, you know, drive a lot. And he said, I was driving along through Florida, and I don't know where it was. But he said, I turned on the radio, and your program was there, and I was listening to you. And you said that Jesus is God. And so I immediately got really mad. I turned off my radio. He said, but five minutes later, I turned it back on. And he said, I started listening to you slowly. And he said, he said, there came a point when, at one time when you were presenting the truth of who Jesus was. So I stopped my car by the side of the road and I got out and I said, he is God. And he became a Christian. Got excommunicated from the JWs, thrown out. He said, but I prayed for my family and right now my, my wife was saved, my kids are saved, my mom and dad got out of that thing. And I said, it all came out because you said on the radio that Jesus is God. You didn't walk around it. You didn't dance around it. And, and, and my, you, you came right out and hit the, the truth of that. And he said, it hit me between the eyes. And he said, I got mad. I got angry. I didn't like it. But that's what I needed to hear. Look, folks, you're not doing people favors by dancing around the truth. Tell them the truth. Don't be obnoxious about it, but don't shy away from it. And Stephen didn't. He, he told the guy, he said, you guys crucified your own Messiah. You, you, you killed the Son of God. Got him the first martyr. But you know what? Yeah, he got the word out. And, his, his, and because of his, his death, what has happened? It emboldened the church. They proclaimed the word of God more boldly. They weren't afraid. What's the worst thing that could die? Worst thing happening? You could die and go to heaven. Oh, that's really horrible. You know, I'll never see the Indians win the pennant. Well, you know, you could stay through the millennium and not see that one, okay? So, I mean, or the Browns win the Super Bowl, right? 
used to go to church as a child, but she quit going. She got married, and her and her husband needed one go to church. So she's been walking with me at lunchtime. And we talk about the Lord all the time, and she asked me questions. And so now she's trying to determine what she needs to do, like as far as which church or where she needs to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think she was Lutheran or something before. Yeah. So what do you what I tell you? I wouldn't I wouldn't worry as much about the church as as the gospel. Yeah. And see that that's 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 the crux. That's where that's where we miss it sometimes. And and one of the real dangers of this whole emergent church seeker sensitive thing, the danger is that you will sacrifice the truth in order to be relevant. Christ didn't do that. The woman who was taken in adultery and brought before him, what did he do? Say, well, go away. It doesn't matter what you do. After all, you know, you're in. He's saying, go away and cut that out. Send no more. Christ confronted people at the point of error. You have to confront people at the point of error. And see, in that case, what you have there, so you have someone who's asking, so what do you do? You you are patient with them. Right. You answer their questions. You right. you work with them, you know, that kind of thing. But you have to tell them the truth and don't worry. Well, you know, if I say this, she'll get mad and won't walk with me and that, and then she'll never get. Don't worry about where the pieces land. In a gentle, loving, kind, compassionate way, mm-hmm. preach the truth. And don't shy away from the point of error. That's one of the that's one of the things that really irritated me with the whole promise keeper movement, is that there's a movement where it says, let's not talk about that which divides us. Let's talk about what unites us. Now that sounds really good on the outside. It sounds like, wow, that's a really a positive thing. That's that's a good thing. But the problem is, how do I talk to a Catholic about what unites us? What should I be telling them? They got the Trinity down. They got the deity of Christ down. What they got really fouled up is the person and work of Christ. Right. It's not faith alone and Christ alone. Yeah. And and therefore, by definition, they are not Christians. If you're a good Catholic, you're not a believer. The only way you can be a Christian and a Catholic is to be a bad one. Because you've got to go against what the church teaches. And you're not doing them a favor saying, oh, you believe in Jesus. Well, we're one big happy family. Well, of course. Any more than you can say to a Mormon, well, we both believe Jesus is the Son of God. You're in. Wait a minute. What do they mean by that? They mean something far different from that than you believe. And, you know, we don't want to go around becoming so divisive that we're all by ourselves in the end. That's not the point of Scripture. But what... Where, what is our fellowship? What did First John? Yeah, what did First John say in First John? What did John say in First John? Where does our fellowship lie? We have fellowship with the Father, and with His Son Jesus Christ. Okay, so if I have fellowship with the Father, who else will I have fellowship with? And who else will I have fellowship with? And who else? Any other believer that is in fellowship with the Father. And what is fellowship with the Father predicated on? My faith in Jesus. My faith and and placed on truth. Oh, yeah. 
And if somebody doesn't have a, have a proper view of who Christ is and what he did, I can have no fellowship. I might be able to play golf with them and go out to lunch with them and socialize with them, but it's, when it comes down to true fellowship, there can be no fellowship. Well, could you like um, belong to uh, a church and then join the Mormon church? Do you think you still could be saved? You could be saved and totally screwed up in your thinking. Okay. That's always a possibility. All right. But the problem is, here, here's the point. You cannot come to Christ and have an aberrant view of his person and work and be a Christian. You cannot say, I'm going to take Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. All I know, he was created by God. You understand what I'm saying? No. All right. Um, technically, technically, does do any of us have a 100% accurate view of God? No. No, because we're falling cute. It ain't going to happen. All right. This ain't going to happen. But there are certain things that we can know, right? Can you become a Christian and not believe that Jesus is God. No. No. Now you may not understand what is what does it mean by that and you know all that homoousias and homoousias and heterousias and all that. You might not even get into that. That's all the stuff in the you know the the the, the church councils. But you can't know he's God. Can you be a Christian and believe that Jesus did not die for your sins? No. Can you be a Christian and believe that it's you and God that works together to get you into heaven? No. No. See what I'm trying to get at? Yeah. There's a there's a core that you have to... Now, once you become a believer, you can fall under false teaching and get yourself all confused. Yeah. That's a possibility. And, and in fact, what was happening in Galatians? Paul was saying, I'm, I'm amazed that you're so soon removed from what I he said having begun in the spirit are you now perfected by the flesh what's going on you started out right now you're all confused well, I know the Mormons told this lady that her daughter could have her funeral there because she didn't make it to the temple well yeah. that's that's you gotta understand them you don't want to know what that means. Yes, I do want to know too because there's somebody close. Oh, okay, what was it? This this girl. Well, the girl that got killed in Illyria, she swayed over there to the Mormons, and, and so when it was time for her funeral, they told her mother, who belonged to our church, that they couldn't have her funeral there. And the what church? church? At the Mormon church because she didn't make it to the temple. Now, what did they got? Yeah, they got they got this whole yeah this whole Mormonism. It's a works base system and uh, in order for you to reach the celestial level of heaven yeah. which is there are multiple levels of heaven you have to have a temple endowment basically you have to pay money and be baptized in a temple all right there's a whole process you go through that that makes you a a top level mormon and when you're at the top level mormon oh, you know there are certain privileges that you have and not just any riffraff can go to a temple. You have to have a temple recommend. All right. So what? So for example, you you can't you can't walk down here. Yeah. The, the the closest temple I think is Cincinnati has a temple, a Mormon temple. I think it's in, huh? Columbus. Columbus. Columbus has one. Columbus has one. 
You you couldn't go down there. You and I could not go down there Sunday and go to church there. They wouldn't let us in. Really? Yeah, because you gotta you gotta be you gotta be recommended in order to go in there and get baptized and all of that stuff. Which means you gotta go through all this rigmarole at your local state church in order to be recommended to go to the temple. Where is this temple located? There are several of them in the United States. No, I'm in, in Columbus. I don't know. It's one. It's a place down in Columbus. I don't know where it is. It's, I think it's a new one. There was one in Cincinnati. I think they got one in Columbus now. But for example, I, I do a lot of family history stuff. So I went to the Westlake um, Mormon yeah. Church up there on Westlake mm-hmm. on Westwood Drive or somewhere up in there. There's one up um, close to Detroit up there in um, Westlake. But uh, I, I was going to do some research. I walked in there and there's all these cars there one time. And um, you know, I was going to do some family research because they had the library there. And they said, well, you can't come in because we're having a temple dedication. And the only people they would allow into the church were people that had recommendations from their bishops that would allow them to attend the service for their temple dedication. And I'm sitting there and a guy said, well, I'll tell you what, that's fine, but I have to really use the bathroom. (laughs) So they walked me back to the bathroom and walked me out of the church. You know, I was not allowed. I was a pagan. I was not allowed to be there. You know, I felt like a Gentile in the temple. You know, if you go beyond this wall, you'll get killed or something like that. But it's a big deal to them. The whole temple. Yeah. They, she made it to heaven, but not the highest level of heaven. Well, she made it to heaven because we know she was a Christian before. Yeah, but in their theology, there are different levels of heaven. There's the telestial, terrestrial, and celestial. And 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 the celestial heaven people, they get married and have kids and populate planets and all that stuff. The ones below that, you're like angels, you're servants. You don't, you you lose out. And unless unless you're baptized or somebody baptized in your name, you never make it to the celestial level. It's weird. It's weird beyond belief. I could spend hours talking about it, but it's you don't even want to go there. It, the, the point is, the, the point. I follow him around. That's why I see what he's gonna do wrong. I do it on purpose. I do. I try to aggravate him so I can see what he's gonna do wrong. Well, that's that's a good testimony. I say stuff to him just to see. I I had a there's a guy in my where I worked in Oberlin College was a Mormon elder, and. Uh, we had a conversation one day about, you know, what we believed. And he basically said, well, I, you know, you don't really know what we believe. And I told him what they believe. He said, yeah, you're right. You know what we believe. And um, see, in their, in their theology, provided you're not a really bad person, you get a second chance after death. Oh. Yeah, you get another chance. Yeah, right. All right. Um, you get the gospel proclaimed to you. The problem is you're stuck in the celestial heaven phase. You can never make it to the celestial heaven, to the presence of God, unless someone is baptized you got to go through the baptism, and you got to either do it in this life, or somebody could be baptized in your name, which is why the whole big family history business is such a big deal with them, because you can get you can get baptized for your great 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 grandpa, you know, and he's just waiting in in this celestial heaven for somebody to be baptized in his name, and if you get his name and, and that, and you get the card filled out, and you pay a sum of money and are baptized, you release him. It's sort of like purgatory. You release him up to the next level of heaven, which is why why a lot of the and a lot of the um like the the, the the ancestry programs you get they've got endowment dates and all of that stuff where where you actually got dates you can enter where people were baptized or endowed in the temple or or things like it's a it's a big deal to them. So that's the date that that person that 
didn't make it to the temple. Yeah. You were if you're a nice person and you die and you're not part of the Mormon faith, okay. they believe that you get the gospel preached to you in the next life. All right. And if you believe you you are you are you, you can go to the celestial heaven, but since you weren't baptized, you've got a problem because you gotta be baptized to get there, but you're dead, so you can't be baptized. So somebody can be baptized in your name. So your your son can go in and he can pay a sum of money, get baptized in your name, and that's good for you. And this raises me to what level? The next level of heaven, the celestial heaven. And how do I get to the? That is the that is the top mark. Yeah. Good. <laughs> I'm not making any of this up. You can go out. You can go out to their website and you can read all of this stuff. It's it's exactly. It's exactly what they believe. Yeah. And they believe that. And the whole thing about there's there's um, ceilings in the temple where you can have your children sealed to you, so the family relationship is not only good in this life but the next life. And the marriage can be sealed, which means that you're not only married here, but you're married over there. So you better make sure you get the right one, you know. But basically, you're, you're married. So if both of you make it to the celestial heaven component in the next life. You get your own planet. You can have kids, spirit children, and populate your own planet and become a god of your own planet. So, uh, okay, so in the scriptures it says that uh, in the next life that we will know our own and we will be known of them. Is that out of context also? No, I think, you know, when we get to heaven, we'll know who each other is. That's what I mean. You know, um, you know, there's a recognition that we will have. Well, there'll be a recognition of each other, I think. We'll know who each other is. We won't have name tags in heaven, but I'll, I'll be able to pick you out, you know. I might I might look I might look better than I do now, you know. We all probably will. Some people say, you know, that person's so ugly, the only hope for them is the rapture. Um yeah. but uh we'll probably be better, but but where where you confront error and what you see in the book of Acts is they confronted error at the point of error. All right. They weren't obnoxious about it, they didn't beat around the bush. And what did Stephen do here? He hit them right at the point of contention. They crucified their Messiah. They killed their own Messiah. And when they heard that, they stopped their ears, ran out. And, of course, we have the, the stoning of Stephen here. And Paul, of course, is there, Saul at this time, who was there observing this, this martyrdom. And it's interesting, Stephen saw Jesus Christ standing. Yeah. Now what's what's important about that? That he's seated at the right. Yeah. Now now let's ask a question here, all right? If somebody comes into the room, who are you going to stand for? The person Who do you stand for? If somebody walked in that door, who do you get up and stand for? Those who are honorable. Yeah. If President Bush walked in, you you know, you wouldn't say, "Hey, Bob, how you doing?" You know, I'd, I'd stand up, right? I mean, you're, there would be. Sure. Well, some of us probably would just ignore him. No, but you would stand up for the there, there'd be there'd be stand up for or out of respect, right? 
when the judge enters the courtroom. Yeah. You stand up out of respect, you know. When the God, God, Jesus Christ stood up. Huh? Stephen was coming home. I mean, that's an amazing thing. Christ stood up. Okay, let's get some sermon get some sermon material here. Now I'll tell you what, I don't know about you. But I'd like to live a life then when it's my turn to go home that he would stand up for me. Would he stand up for me? But it's something to think about. And of course, Stephen is the first, the first martyr. Acts chapter eight. We're supposed to finish eight tonight, right? That's what you said. I mean, what's the syllabus say? Well, seven is really the the sermon. I'm not going to go into all the gory detail of that. Um, John MacArthur does an excellent job. Yeah, I will be for here forever. Um, MacArthur does a really good job treating it. The, the, the big picture is, is look at how he confronts them. He draws the audience in by talking about their shared history, but then he drives right to the heart of the matter of what they did. And that's what a preacher must do. If, if you don't confront your people, if you're a pastor or a preacher, and you don't confront the people at the point of their error. You've not preached a sermon. You've given a nice pep talk. But you've not preached a sermon. Christ didn't give pep talks. He, he brought the audience to a point of decision. And that's one of the things you see, for example, when Paul preached, when Peter preached, when um, uh, Christ preached. He brought people to, okay, is it yes or is it no? It's not go think about it or, boy, that's, that's sort of something to consider. Yes or no? Sermon on the Mount, how did it end? How did Sermon on the Mount end, remember? Two destinies. There's the broad gate, there's the narrow gate. There's heaven, there's hell. There's trees that bear fruit, there are trees that bear no fruit. There's the guy who built his house on a rock, there's a guy who built his house on the sand. You're in or you're out. That's how they preached. Preach to get a decision. Don't preach to make people feel good. Give them a pep talk. Rah, rah, you know. Now, these are people that know something about it. These are people that knew something. But but always, you know, some people say, well, when you witness to someone, at some point you need to bring them to a point of, Decision. Are you or are you not going to believe? Yes or no? And if you haven't done that, you've not really witnessed to them. You know, it's, it's a point of decision. And really, the eternal destinies of every human being depends on who is Jesus and what did he do? That's, that's the question. And, and and 
you know, in, in our preaching and in our teaching and in our interaction with people, it's okay to talk about their, their questions, their objections. It's okay to do that to a degree. But you got to realize you could spend the rest of your life answering every objection of a Mormon and never get around to telling him that Jesus is God. It's, it's okay to answer those, but you got to bring them quickly to the, the, the crux of the issue. The same thing with Catholicism or Jehovah Witnesses or, or, or Christian science or whatever, or atheism or whatever it is. You got to bring them to that point. And that's what all of the preachers in the book of Acts did and, and apostles and Christ. What are you going to do about it? If you hear my words, you'll be like a man who builds his house on a rock. If you don't, you're like a guy who builds his house on the sand. We're on our way in New Orleans. You know, rain descends, the flood came, the wind blew, and it's gone. Mother Teresa had a Yes. What was it? Her statement was, in fact, um, I know I keep using John MacArthur, but I, he actually met with her and talked to her and uh, asked her about, you know, her beliefs and that. And he said, you know, her, her theology was that, you know, he, he said, do you preach the gospel to a Hindu who's dying in your house there, whatever it was? And her response was, oh, I, I would never do that. Um, you know, if they're sincere, God, God will let them into heaven, whether they believe in Jesus or not. Okay, that's a defective Christology. All right? Universalism. Sort of universalism. And here's, here's, and by the way, just so you understand, that's leaking into evangelicalism. That's leaking in. Slowly it's leaking in. Look, yeah. You don't get to heaven if you don't know who Jesus is. That's it. Okay, well, that that's a that's 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 the most black and white truth of Scripture. What's it say in Acts four twelve? There's salvation in none other. If you don't know who Jesus is, you don't. You know, some people like this elect business. Say, well, if you're elect, you're going to wind up in heaven. Well, now wait a minute. If you are elect, you will get to heaven, but it's not going to be like, what is this place? This is heaven. What am I doing here? You're elect. You're in. Who's that? That's Jesus. Who's Jesus? It doesn't happen that way. And that's why preaching the person and work of Christ is the, the central theme of the Christian life. Everything else is secondary to that. Everything else. You got the wrong Christ, you miss heaven. You got the wrong theology of Christ, you miss heaven. And that's the problem with the Catholicism. They got the right Christ. He's deity. He's God. But they got all fouled up what his work on the cross was. It was a kickstart, but it wasn't the end. It's enough to get rid of the original sin, but it's up to you to get rid of your sin through penance, through purgatory, through whatever. I never knew that. Yeah. An easy conversation to talk to a Catholic would be, uh, they believe in the Trinity, but you would ask them, where does the Holy Spirit live? And they have no clue. Every yeah. week you make the sign of the cross. And you bring your prayers to Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so, if you're born again, the Holy Spirit lives in you. They have no, no clue. They have no clue. 
It's 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 a sad thing. It's sad. Well, they'll make that sign. They don't even end all well, they make that sign. They'll go to the mass. They'll do this. They'll do that, thinking that you know they're in. They don't know who Jesus is. That's nothing. That's nothing better than what Paul says. Hit the Jews on in Romans two says, because you think you're descended from Abraham, you're in. Well, I'll tell you what, God can take those rocks and make children of Abraham. You just because you're a child of Abraham doesn't mean anything. It just means you're doubly damned because you should know better. That's what he's saying. It's it's it. We live in a society today, folks, where 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 black and white truth is not tolerated. Look at the political arena. Look look at what's happening on, you know, in in a political arena. Someone stands up and makes the statement that homosexuality is a sin, and they are ran out of town on a rail. How dare they be so black and white and bigoted, and, you know? And and, and and the reason that that most Americans just don't comprehend what's going on over in the Middle East is you've got people in the Middle East who, right or wrong, have a black and white view of the world. You're in or you're not. There's none of this, you know, you do your thing, I'll do mine, and we'll all sort of wind up in the same location sometime. You're, you are you are doing this or you're not. It's black and white. And that's why Rosie O'Donnell can stand and say the Christians are just as bad as the Muslim extremists. And why is it? Well, in her worldview, everything's this one massive gray thing, you know. There's no black and white. There's no right and wrong. It's all gray. And how dare she, you know, in her own mentality, how dare she say her gray is better than your gray? It's all gray. There's no black and white. And yet the scripture brings us to there's truth and there's error. And when all of eternity is, begins, you're in heaven or you're not. You're not in between somewhere. And I remember Vance Havner preaching a sermon on the, on the sinking of the Titanic. And I have a book from my, my great aunt where... In her in her Latin book, she has a, a date there. Titanic sank. That's where she was when the Titanic. It's interesting to see that book, but she she was in school. But the date that the Titanic sank, she had written it in her school book. And um, someone said that that when it was all said and done, it doesn't matter. They didn't have when you go to Canard office in in New York, they did not say wealthy dead alive. They did not have poor, dead, alive. They didn't have white, dead, alive, black, dead, alive. What they had was dead, alive. You were dead or you were alive. That's the, that's every other designation, social, gender, race was irrelevant. You were alive or you were dead. And when it comes to the scripture, when eternity starts, that's all you're going to get. It doesn't matter what color you are, what nationality you are, what age, what race, what sex. You're in or you're not. Now, do the Catholic people believe in resurrection? Yeah. Mm -hmm. They do. They believe in 
I went to parochial school, I'm telling you, from kindergarten to 12th grade, and I never knew all this stuff. So that's because that's because in Catholicism we're not going to get to chapter 8 we'll pick it up next week I'm sorry in Catholicism it's all gray it's all a grayness see but but what, what what's interesting about Stephen here think think about this man who stood up in a very unpopular spot and allowed himself to die for his faith. Allow himself to die for it. Allow himself to be stoned. You know, it's like to be stoned to death. Rocks dropped on your head to give your life. Amazing. Paul did. Yeah, Paul did. Yeah, Paul did. Yeah, he killed it because he wouldn't give up Jesus. The little black kid got killed. Yeah. Pardon? Who was? H E L E N I. Yeah, who was that? Yeah. What is a Hellenist? Okay. And Hellenist was a Greek person. Someone from the Greek persuasion. Okay. Um, they were they were not a Jew. Hellenos is the is the Greek word for Greece. It's Hellenos. All right, Helene. Um, and so Stephen was a Gentile. He wasn't a he well, excuse me. There, there were Jews, there were Hellenistic Jews. They were Jews from the Jewish state, and there were Greek Jews. All right. And then there were Gentiles who were outside of, you know, being an Israelite. And again, in, in the early church, in the church, all racial distinctions, right, have been removed. So whether you're a Greek or a Gentile or whatever you are, you're one in Christ. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, as you, as you work down through his his, you know, he starts there with with Moses. He goes on and talks about how Israel rebelled against God. All right, how they, you know, how they 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 uh, went off into idolatry. How they rejected their Messiah. And then, you know, in 51, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. So here's one of the things. One of the things that the Jews wanted to say is, well, you know, if we would have been alive back in the time of such and such a prophet, we wouldn't have done what our fathers did. Yeah, you would have. Remember what Christ said? Your fathers killed the prophets, and you're making monuments in their name. Yeah, you whitewashed tombs. Look really beautiful on the outside, but open up, and what do you got? Bones and rotting flesh and stink and filth and everything else. It was just straight up like that. I mean, like, uh, but if you preach a message, messages like that, nowadays they're, they're saying, you the son of nigga, you always got... <laughs> you, need, you need to proclaim... Now, 
be careful not to be obnoxious. Right, that's what I'm saying. Like, if you put what I'm saying, like what he just said, you don't, you kill them aside, you, what do you call them, stiff neck? What? Yeah, stiff neck. Mm -hmm. What is being a stiff neck? What does stiff neck mean? Stubborn. Stubborn. And, and, and what was one of the main terms that God used for Israel in the whole book of Ezekiel? Rebellious and stiff-necked. Constantly rebellious, rebellious. In fact, there's one verse that says, I'm going to send you to rebellious people who rebel in their heart and are going to rebel against me. And I think rebellion is used like five or six times within one sentence almost. But I'm saying that's strong language for there. That's what made him mad. Because he was calling on the carpet in a straightforward way, face to face, and hit him right in the face. And... And said all the things that they had heard before. He hit them right at their point of error. Hit them at the point of error. Yeah. Because see, they, they thought they're in. We are God's people. We are in. Yeah. And he's saying, you're stiff-necked and you're rebellious and you've, you, you resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. He said, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Now, that's a rhetorical no-brainer question. They prophesied. They persecuted all of them. Look at Ezekiel. He was considered a nut job. Look at Jeremiah. He was the weeping prophet. In fact, God told Ezekiel, I'm going to send you to rebellious people, and they're not going to listen to you. How'd you like that as your pastoral call? God said, I want you to go preach the word of God to this church. You know what? They're not going to listen to you. They're going to rebel. How'd you like to be like Isaiah, scorned? Look at all the prophecies. You know, almost all of them died martyrs, just about. Persecuted by the religious leaders, the kings. How'd you like to be Jeremiah? You wrote out, you wrote out the gospel, you know, not the gospel, but you wrote out you know, a prophecy of Jeremiah, and you give it to the king, and he says, yeah, pretty good, and he starts cutting it up and burning it in the fire. God says, okay, we'll take care of that. Sent back, rewrote it, and then added some chapters about judgment on the king. Who did that? Jeremiah. Look, Jeremiah, he took it to the king, and he said he cut it up with a pen knife in his summer house and burned it in the fire. Mm -hmm. And God said, well, we write the book, and we're going to add some material about him. All right. All of them were persecuted. He, he hits right at them. And you killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you have now have become the betrayers and murderers. Wow. You murdered the Holy One. I said they were cut to their heart. They knew it wasn't the truth. They got really, they were so mad they couldn't see straight. I took him out in a rage. I stoned him to death. No. But they killed Stephen. See, see, one of the things that we, we have this desire that when we preach the gospel, we want people to, to, Acquiesce and be accepting of it now. You gotta realize there is a response of hatred and abject rejection. And that's part of it. Some people say, well, you know, if I preach the gospel and they reject it, you know, 
It's my fault. No, it's not. It's their fault. They reject the truth. It's their fault. All right. Well, we caught up a little bit. We're only one chapter behind, but we'll get there. We're getting there. Yeah. Cults. Well, normally I wouldn't talk about that, except you all bring it up. And this class is about, for your benefit, not, you know, you're getting through the text. We're getting through the book here. We're, we're making it through here. They do have some. Yeah. 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 Well, what's odd is you start saying that people believe this and they say, they don't believe that. And they do. And the Catholicism is a particularly tough one because most people in there don't know what they believe. You, you, you don't really know. And that's, you know, that's what I, yeah, I, I tell, you know, I got a Catholic guy at work and I, I tell him, I said, well, you know, your church believes in Mary, praying to Mary. So I don't believe that. I said, I know you don't. But the official stance of the Catholic Church is that you pray to Mary. It has nothing to do with whether you would or not. Just like some of them believe in praying to saints. Yeah. The latest one, I, I read through one of the bulletins from one of his churches, and I guess they're having a, a bless the animals day where you bring your animal in and the priest will bless your, your dog or your cat or whatever. Yeah, For, and that's in the name of St. Francis of Assisi. Yeah, it's like, well, anyways, let's uh, close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time, and thank you for your word, and I pray that you would help us to ponder it, to think about it, and, and to, to have it change our lives, that we would act upon it. Thank you for this day and for your grace to us. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.